It's always interesting being a preacher, I've decided. This morning when I came in, someone came up to me, and I'm not going to mention his name, and he says, you know, the heat's out in the church today, so you've got to provide a lot of hot air. <laughs> so I thought that was kind of cool. You know, I've been told since I've been preaching here over the last, I don't know, couple of years or whatever, that I'm a storyteller as well. So I'm a storyteller, I provide hot air, and my iPad keeps wanting to connect to a network here. It's going to drive me crazy. Um, I'm definitely not our pastor, Stephen. I'm, I'm Jeff. I'm one of the other people that are here. So, Well, good morning, everyone. I hope everybody's doing good. So today, we're going to look at Psalm 39. You know, Pastor Stephen, about two months ago, asked me if I would preach today, and over the past couple of months, he kept coming to me and saying, you think you're going to make it? You think you're going to make it? So JB had to have a backup sermon in case I didn't make it. So he's probably really thankful he's not up here preaching now after leading. So let's just open up to Psalm 39 this morning. And Psalm 39 begins, and as Pastor Stephen has pointed out, some, some of our texts have this kind of header thing there and others don't, but it begins to the choir master, to Judithan, a Psalm of David. Now last week, Pastor Stephen preached Psalm 5, and he addressed how when a psalm was written for a choir master, it was written so that it would be taught and sung to the congregation of Israel, that it was some kind of a message that needed to be, be heard by everybody, embraced by everybody. So today we're in the same case as last week. Psalm 39 was written to be taught and to be led and sung by a particular choir master. His name is Judithun. And you can look in Second Chronicles and find out who he is. He was one of the seers of David, and his uh, children are, and grandchildren are seen as worshipers as well. So we are starting with the Psalm 39 that David wrote. Now, that might seem kind of foreign to people, but we do the same thing here, right? Every now and then, JB walks up here and he says, hey, I got a new song for us all to learn today. So we're kind of comfortable with this practice. I mean, the, I think the last time that I heard JB say that, we all learn together, yet not I, but Christ in me. And it's a very fitting song because it is about Christ in us. Now, song is one thing that the Holy Spirit can use to help renew our mind, to help us to become more Christ-like day in and day out in our thinking, to, to be more gospel-oriented. Song is definitely one of the things that the Holy Spirit can use, and that is why this church is so careful about what songs we do sing, that they have good biblical theology, and it's one of the things I appreciate. Now, if you think, well, I don't know what this whole renewal of the mind is or where it comes from, it actually comes from Romans chapter 12, verse 2, where we are told as Christians, do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. 
Now, learning biblically sound songs is one way that the Holy Spirit can give us a biblical worldview, but there's even a better way, and that better way is that we go straight to the Word of God ourselves. This is what renews our mind. This is what us, makes us to think more like Christ, more God-like. And as we read the Bible, the Holy Spirit conforms our mind to God's Word, breaking the influence and the control that the world has over us and over our thinking. So, What's that all about? Well, it's about this. If you don't personally own a copy of the Word of God of the Bible, then as Pastor Stephen says every week, grab one. They're strategically placed under a lot of the chairs in here. You can grab a copy of the Bible. You can take it home. It's not stealing. It's being given to you so that you can learn what God wants you to know about Him, what God wants you to know about yourself, what God wants you to know about about the world around you and the people around you, and even better than that, so that you can learn about the good news of Jesus Christ and the gospel of how after man broke this world and broke our relationship with God, separating us, God so loved us that he sent his only begotten son. Jesus Christ came as a man that he would bear the penalty of our sin upon himself so that our sin could be punished and then God could therefore call us and declare us righteous and justified in his sight. That is such good news that if we would put our faith in the works of Jesus on the cross and stop putting our hope and our trust to get to heaven in our own works, that God would then forgive us and we would go to heaven as we follow Christ. That is good news. Now, there's a lot more about that good news in here, so please take a copy. Now, right now, let's begin by reading our Bible by going to Psalm 39, and we will begin with verse 1. David writes, I said, I will guard my ways that I may not sin with my tongue. I will guard my mouth with a muzzle so long as the wicked are in my presence. I was mute and silent. I held my peace to no avail and my distress grew worse. My heart became hot within me. As I mused, the fire burned. Then I spoke with my tongue. We'll stop there for a moment. Do you kind of feel as if we've walked in to the middle of a story, the way that he begins? I mean, apparently, there's something really bothering David, but we're not told what that thing is that's bothering it. Was it an illness? Was it a financial woe? Was it suffering of some kind? Was it persecution? I mean, we don't know what's clearly bothering David that he, he wants to guard his mouth, that he doesn't want to speak in the presence of the wicked, of the, the ungodly, but there's something truly bothering him. We don't know what it is, but we have learned two things in those first three verses. The number one thing that we've learned is that whatever David's trouble is, whatever is troubling him, it's not something that he actually wants to share with the wicked. He doesn't want to speak it to the presence of the wicked, to the presence of the, in the presence of the ungodly. That's the first thing we learn. 
So instead of talking about what's on his mind, David is going to guard his ways, he says. I'm going to guard my ways. Now, when we guard something, really what it means, it means that we keep a very close watch upon that thing. And the thing that David is going to keep a very close watch upon is his tongue. David knows that he is so troubled that he could have a slip of the tongue. Anybody in here ever have a slip of the tongue? I mean, huh. I would say not I, but my wife might stand up and say, I don't know about that, you know. David is going to guard himself from a slip of the tongue. And he's going to do it so intently that he says he's going to put a muzzle over his mouth. Now, I can see putting a muzzle on a little yapping dog or something like that. But I don't know how a muzzle fits on us. So really, picture it this way. David is going to clamp his hand over his mouth, and he's going to hold those lips shut. That is how intently he's going to guard his tongue. David is not going to vent his mind before men. He's not going to let men know what is on his mind, especially ungodly men who do not know God. But why doesn't David want to say what he's, or why doesn't David, yeah, why doesn't David want to say what he's thinking in the midst of these godless people? It's because those who do not know God would take what he was thinking or saying wrongly. They would misconstrue his words. They would not understand his thoughts. Okay, warning. Here comes some of the storytelling part. I mean, you may or may not be aware of this. I missed most of the Sunday services in September and October. Probably not a good thing for a deacon to admit that for two months he really never came to service. I mean, you guys can, and we can find out how to vote me out if you want. I'm not really sure how it is, but, you know, the bylaws or the Constitution, I mean, Tom would know how all that worked. But, uh, I mean, why wasn't I here worshiping with you and sitting under the Word? It was illness that kept me from you. Pain, discomfort, extreme fatigue, not being able to eat or drink much. I lost 27 pounds. It's a great weight loss program if anybody wants it, you know. I mean, I was so weak and frail, miserable mess, just trying to survive. One of the things my wife probably gets worried is when I start getting transparent and candid up as I'm preaching. She never knows what I'm going to say, but... I'll be very candid. During that time, I grew quite anxious. And I'm not an extremely anxious person to begin with, but I, anxiety started to take over me, even fear. I wasn't sure what was, if I was going to recover. I was just going to waste away, I thought, to nothing and kind of just turn to dust. Now, my anxiety wasn't a good thing. It led to depression, almost despair. I mean, I'm in, in a much better place today, you know. Thankfully, JB doesn't have to preach. But you know what? During those eight weeks, it's not that I only missed church. I, I only went to the office a few hours probably during those eight weeks. I'd go an hour here, two hours there, and 
maybe at the most once a week or every two weeks. And here's where this fits kind of into Psalm 39. The couple of hours at a time I would make it to the office, I, like David, had to really guard my tongue and be careful about what I said. I was very careful about what I said to others, especially to those who do not know God there. Because I didn't want people to know what I was thinking, what was in my heart at times, because I didn't want them to take it wrongly. I did not want anything I was feeling or saying to lead an unbelieving person to think that God was not good because I was struggling. If I had not guarded my tongue, people would have heard some doubts, some hopelessness, kind of the forsakenness I was feeling. And that would have confused them because normally in the office, people always hear me speak of God's goodness and about how he does not forsake us, how he is always with us. I suspect that David wanted to guard his tongue because he did not want people to get confused because he was experiencing some very real, and as Pastor Stephen called them last week, raw emotions concerning what was going on in his life. There's, we've heard already that the psalms are real, that they're filled with emotion. There's another truth concerning the psalms I'd like to point out. The psalms often expose our hearts in a way, in the way that they talk about what we at times are feeling and experiencing. The first thing we learn in verses 1 through 3 is David doesn't want to tell unbelievers what's troubling him. And the second thing we learn is that not talking about what's troubling him is not helping him either. I was mute and silent. I held my peace to no avail, and my distress grew worse. My heart became hot within me as I mused. The fire burned. Then I spoke with my tongue. Me, personally, dwelling on my anxiety, doubts, worries, and fears during my illness didn't help. The more I thought about how anxious I was, the more anxious I became. The more I dwelt with my fears and worries, the more worried and fearful I became. I tried to ignore and push under the rug what I was feeling, but I just couldn't do it. And apparently neither could David do that. Because he tells us that by not expressing his thoughts, it caused a fire to burn within him. I did a little word study on that phrase about the fire burning within him. And what it points to in the original Hebrew is he was heated by worry and anxiety. He was anxious as well in this situation. He was worried. But at the end of verse 3, David tells us that he finally did speak. But he speaks not to man. He doesn't vent to man. He doesn't speak to man. He speaks to God instead. Look at verse 4. 
O Lord, make me to know my end. What is the measure of my days? Let me know how fleeting I am. Behold, you have made my days a few handbreadths, and my lifetime is as nothing before you. Surely, all mankind stands as a mere breath. Selah. In David's prayer of sorts, I find one more truth concerning the Psalms. The Psalms have an uncanny ability of being able to quickly shift our perspective, to redirect our attention from what is worldly to what is heavenly. David's prayer is an interesting perspective. When he is all worried and anxious about life, his prayer is, Lord, really teach me how short my life is. Now, knowing how short life really is, just a moment in an eternal span of time shifts our perspective from those things, as J.B. likes to tell us, those things that have a shelf life, it shifts our perspective from those things on this earth that have a shelf life to those things that are more heavenly, that moth will not eat, that rust will never corrode, and that no thief will ever be able to steal from us. In the midst of what's troubling David, he throws up to his hands to heaven and he cries, Lord, you are eternal. I am not. Remind me how short my earthly life really is. Put it all into perspective in your heavenly picture. You know, that's one thing God used my illness to do. He was reminding me how fleeting my days really are. You know, a, a year and a half ago, I went and got my first tattoo, you know. And uh, people would come up to me, those in the office and others would say, wow, you must be going through a midlife crisis. And I said, well, no, not really, unless I'm going to live to be 120. <laughs> Anybody in here 120? You know, in preparing this sermon, I did something that I often do. Call me weird. I read the obituaries. Every now and then, I just pick up and I read the obituaries. I'll tell you what, I, I saw something very interesting when I read them this week. And this was kind of startling almost. The most popular age of people who had died in that period of time I was looking at the obituaries for was 39. There were multiple people who had died at 39. A couple had died in their 90s, but the vast majority, if you just looked at an age group, were in their 30s. Now, I'm old, all right? I'm counting my days. But you know what? Maybe we all, no matter our age, really need to remember how fleeting this life really is. Maybe none of us should live day by day as if we're going to live this present life forever. Maybe we need to, like David, 
pray. And Lord, show us how fleeting our days really are. That's probably more than likely why David's prayer ends with Selah there. Because at times, contemplating the, the shortness of life is a good thing to do. It helps us to put our life into perspective, to reflect upon what really is important and lasting versus that, as I mentioned, JB says, those things that have a shelf life that are just not going to continue. Now, after a bit of reflection, David does continue in verse 6. Surely a man goes about as a shadow, Surely, for nothing, they are in turmoil. Man heaps up wealth and does not know who will gather it. David reflects upon our lives, how they vanish like a shadow, like a vapor. You know, I was listening to a 20-something-year-old in the office last week, and the person was take, saying, man, as I get older, things speed up. Anybody else realize that? As things get old, it's almost Christmas, right? I mean, a Thanksgiving meal is coming up Wednesday here. David reflects on how our lives are just but a vapor. And you know what? Two or three generations from now, I doubt any of us will even be remembered unless we do something historically significant, of course, then we will. But it's so quick. I mean, I knew my, my parents, my grandparents, had met my great-grandparents a couple of times. Beyond that, I have no real recollection. Our lives are so quick, they vanish. Earthly life is a vapor. It's a mist. It passes away. David mirrors the words of Job, Ecclesiastes, James, and Jesus when he speaks of earthly possessions, how we work to acquire them our whole earthly life, and yet we do not know what will happen to them after we die. Jesus told of the man in Luke who built up his big silos and filled them up, and Jesus says, man, you fool. You don't even know what's going to happen to them when you're gone. Sometime after this psalm, David's son Solomon, King Solomon, will describe this life in many ways, and the term he'll use more than any other term is vanity of vanities. To just describe how unimportant so much of what we do on this short life really is. You know, in verses 1, 2, and 3, David has spoken of his anxious, doubting, worrisome situation that he's got to guard his mouth from. In verses 4, 5, and 6, he's spoken of the brevity of life. Verse 7 is almost an answer to verses 1 through 6. Verse 7, and now, O Lord, for what do I wait? My hope is in you. David, realizing the brevity of life, asks the question, what am I waiting for? What am I looking for? What am I expecting this life to provide me beyond you? You are the greatest. You are all I need. My hope is in you. Why am I waiting for this earthly life to provide me anything else? 
I already have my hope, and it is you. Whatever the situation David's in, no matter the struggling he's having, David knows that his only true hope is God. It's definitely not anything else that this life can bring. Our hope is God. God is who subdues our anxiety. He quiets our doubts. He gives us courage in the midst of our fears. David is going to hold to God. Now, finally, in verse 8, we find insight into what's been troubling David, what, what has got him all worked up. Deliver me from all my transgressions. Do not make me the scorn of a fool. I am mute. I do not open my mouth, for it is you who have done it. Remove your stroke from me. I am spent by hostility of your hand. What's David's problem? What's got him all worked up? What's his anxiety been about? Why won't he speak in the presence of the ungodly? It's because David knows he is suffering due to his own sin. Be it illness, injury, hardship, persecution, financial woes, whatever's been troubling David, he knows is the result of his very own sin. In verse 7, we heard David, I mean, we heard God as David's only hope, and now in verse 8, we know that to be true, because as in the case of David, as in our cases personally, God is our only hope when it comes to overcoming our sin problem. It is only God. David wants to be delivered from all of his transgressions for all of those times that he has gone against and violated God's commands. For David knows God is the only one who can deal with his sin and deliver him from it. In verse 1, David didn't want to speak of his sin problem in the midst of unbelievers. And now in verse 8, we learn that he didn't want to speak because he knew unbelievers would only scorn him, would only mock him, because they could not understand that the loving God actually brought suffering upon him because of his sin. I know a few people are probably squirming a little here. But David attributes, attributes his suffering to God doing it, to God's stroke being against him. David is not expressing anger at God for what God has done. He's just acknowledging that God has done it. And he's asking God to revoke, to remove that stroke that God has placed against him as well. You know, when I went to the office those few times during my sickness, I was guarding my lips, I was guarding my tongue, and there was only one thing I told people. There was only one thing that I, I could say about God because I was just in a, a bit depressed kind of place or whatever, 
I, had had, I was having conversations with God, but when it came to man, there was only one thing I could say. And it was just, God is still on the throne. When people would say about how you're doing and everything else, I just, God is still on the throne. And he is. He is. Even in these situations, in the midst of David's tr- troubles, in the midst of his, his whatever it was, his illness, his, his suffering, in the midst of all of that, God is still on the throne. God is still his only hope and our only hope. God is sovereign. Whatever was going on with David, whatever God imposed upon him because of his sin, God was doing it for a good reason because God is a good God. God can only do good. I know this is deep, but it's true. But I couldn't say that to an unbeliever because there's no way that they could understand that. And David couldn't say it to an unbeliever either because there was no way that they could understand that. Because all they would hear is, oh, God causes people to suffer. I don't want anything to do with him. They couldn't understand the depths of who God is. Now, in verse 11, we see that David understands that his suffering is actually a means of God disciplining him for his sin. Verse 11, when you discipline a man with with rebukes for sin, you consume like a moth what is dear to him. Surely all mankind is a mere breath. Selah. Hey, these psalms are real. And they are full of raw emotion. And they often shift our perspective from what is transitory to what is eternal. And the psalms often expose the thoughts and the the words of our own hearts and minds because we see other people have experienced so much of the same thing. And I'll add one more. The psalms often make us grapple with some of the hard truths of God such as these truths today, that in response to our sin, often God will bring upon us things that we will find troubling in order to discipline us for our own good. Proper discipline in its most basic form is education to help a person do what is good and right. The raw emotions of the Psalms are often centered upon deep and uncomfortable truths of God, like the fact that God will bring upon us the ramifications of our sin in order to discipline us. And that's actually a very good thing. Yes, he forgives our sin. Yes, he doesn't hold it against us when we put our faith in Christ, but yet he will allow the ramifications of our sin to affect our lives. And he will do it for our good. For God is good and he only does good. So when we see something like illness, injury, persecution, or suffering is bad, we need to remember that God is somehow doing good through it all. God's discipline is a good thing. Being rebuked for our sin is a good thing. Having the idols of our life those things that we quickly cling to, having them consumed, to use the word 
of the psalmist, having them consumed, purged from our life, it's a good thing. Discipline, rebuking, the consuming of those things that we hold too tightly, they're all really good things. Because these are all aimed at diverting our attention away from our brief and frail lives so that we can place our attention upon the one true God who is our only lasting hope forever. The writer of Hebrews, perhaps better than any other, gives a good perspective when it comes to God disciplining us for good. In Hebrews chapter 12, verses 5 and 6, we hear, My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor be weary when reproved by him. For the Lord disciplines the one he loves and chastises every son he receives. If you were to continue reading in Hebrews, you would hear that if you do not have discipline in your life, you are not God's child. Because he loves us. He wants us to do right. God's love for us is why he does what he does. God disciplines us because he loves us. David knew that. It would probably help for us to remember that. Now David ends his psalm beginning in verse 12. Hear my prayer, O Lord, and give ear to my cry. Hold not your peace at my tears, for I am a sojourner with you, a guest like all my fathers. Hmm. There are many, there were many times over the past couple of months as I was just sitting there moaning and, you know, worrying Marilyn that uh, my, my only prayer I could say was, God, help me or God, take me. That's it. I'm just a sojourner in this land. Just take me home, Jesus. Beam me up, Jesus. You know, David kind of is in that place. And in essence, David is praying the same thing. He's, he's really saying, please help me when you see me crying. It, the Psalms are real. You know, they expose things that we have, moments that we have. Sometimes that's our only prayer. God, help me. Jesus, there's a prayer, just one word, Jesus. Even in Romans chapter 8, we're told that the Spirit will intercede when we can groan. In our groaning, he'll intercede. In the midst of illness, in the midst of persecution, in the midst of anxiety, in the midst of worry, in the midst of all these things, it's often the time that the Lord shows us that this is not our home. There's a better day coming. He's promised that, and he is faithful to keep his word. We are all sojourners here. We are all but passing through this life either to eternal life with God in heaven or eternal life apart from God in hell. We are sojourners. David ends the psalm finally in verse 13. Look away from me that I may smile again before I depart and end no more. David's basically saying, Lord, just leave me alone and let me die happy. So let me just go to the grave in peace. 
I don't like that ending. Kind of somber. I don't like that. David just speaks of departing and being remembered no more, just going to the grave. But you know what? I think in many ways we can all at times relate to Psalm 39. But the good news is those of us who know God, or shall we say are known by God, those of us who have placed our faith in Christ, those who, of us who have our hope in God, we know that the grave is not the end. No, the grave is only the beginning. I don't like when people talk about, you know, life after death. It's, it's life after life. We go from one life to another life. And we who are in Christ have a life awaiting us that does away with the anxiety, does away with the worries, does away with the fears, does away with the tears, does away with the mocking and the scorning, does away with all of those sleepless nights. And it is a life that is more than a hand breadth. It is a life that is not fleeting. It is a life that is eternal and will never end. Those who have expressed remorse over our rebellious acts against God and have turned from our sin to follow Jesus, we know that the story does not end where David ends it at the grave. And we can respond to Psalm 39 in gratitude. We can respond to Psalm 39 by continually holding fast to God who is our only hope. Knowing that whatever happens in this life will just be overcome by the joys of the next life as we spend eternity with God in the presence of Christ. So let us, those of us who Know Christ. Let us respond today by, as Pastor Stephen says all the time, by pressing in, by clinging to, by holding to, onto Christ. Now, there are some who may have heard me preach this psalm that don't have that relationship with Christ yet, that don't understand the brevity of this life, and the hope of the eternal days to come. So those who may have heard on the internet or in this room, how can you respond? Well, every week, Pastor Stephen stands up here, and he talks about how you can respond by putting your trust in Christ. The Bible tells us to lay down all of the self-righteousness, the thoughts that we somehow can save ourselves by doing good works and being perfect in God's eyes. None of us can work our way to heaven. None of us can earn our way to heaven. None of us can educate our way to heaven, can do anything like that. 
we all have a sin problem. And that sin problem has separated us from God. But the good news is that God became man in the flesh of Jesus Christ to take upon himself the penalty due you and I for our sins. And if we will put our faith in the work that he did on the cross, we will be declared righteous by God. We will spend our life in heaven. We will be saved. And the Bible just tells us today, turn from your sins, turn to Christ and follow him. And let us all do that. There is one more thing I would like to share. And it's, some of my, it's probably my favorite words in the Bible, my favorite statement. It's made by a guy named Job. If you don't know Job, right, Job lost loved ones. He lost his possessions. He lost his health. And in the midst of his great suffering, Job says this. Oh, that my words were written. Oh, that they were inscribed in a book. Oh, that with an iron pen and lead they were engraved in the rock forever. For I know that my Redeemer lives. And at the last he will stand upon the earth. And after my skin has thus been destroyed, yet in my flesh I shall see God whom I shall see for myself and my eyes shall behold and not another. We all know Christ is the one redeemer. Let us put our faith in him today. Let's pray. Father, in many ways, Lord, we find it difficult at times dealing with things in our lives be it the illness, be it the suffering, be it whatever it might be. We look at, we look at the wicked and they're just, they're just partying, they're having fun. But Lord, we trust you. We trust you because we know you are good. You are holy, you are righteous, you are perfect. You only do good and you love us. You love us so much that you came to save us, to redeem us. And we are looking forward to the day of our redemption, to our eternal redemption. We are looking forward to the day that after these bodies have deteriorated in the grave, that yet we will stand on this earth and see our Redeemer when he comes. Father, I lift up those in our congregation that are going through difficult times now we lift them up we pray that you just make your presence known to them every moment of every day and father help us all to just be the people you've called us to be to the glory of your holy name in the name of christ we pray amen